American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given to New York City teachers as part of a professional development seminar. It's very nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, it was a treat to walk in and see some familiar faces of old friends. Um, what we're going to do today is talk about our forthcoming book, which will be out um, in January, right? By Temple University Press called Envisioning Emancipation. Um, the book, and Deb will talk a little bit more about sort of the genesis of the book and how we came to pick the images that we did, but our, the book came out of conversations between a historian and a photography scholar and photographer about the photography of slavery and emancipation and what those images, what those photographs meant as historical relics, as artifacts, and as historical documents. Um, and just over the years, we started having a number of conversations about photographs that we were each finding and thinking about and writing about. And then we kind of had that light bulb moment of this needs to be a book and a much larger, fuller conversation. Um, one of the central themes in our work that we, oh yeah. Um, one of the central themes in this project, in our work, um, that we wanted to share with you and open up for discussion with you today is this idea of thinking about the Civil War as a moment, as a watershed moment and a key event that was fundamentally shaped by and defined by African Americans, right? Not thinking about it as something that happened to enslaved people or something that involved free black people, but that is an event that was fundamentally influenced by free and enslaved African American participants. Um, to that end, when we've worked with the images one of our central themes in this work has been thinking about the different ways these photographs function as memorials and what the different meanings of a memorial might be. Um, on the one hand, and perhaps at first glance, the images um, testify to individual existence, right? They also remind us of collective experience. Um, the images we found have been especially compelling, and we'll go through them, Deb will go through them and talk about some of the pictures in more detail. Um, but some things to think about are that the images of free and enslaved African-Americans during the Civil War offer us really compelling and potentially engaging glimpses of lives that have otherwise been lost to the historical record. Right, so on the one hand, the images function as a memorial in terms of simply offering us proof of people's survival. Right, that people survived slavery and made it through to the other side, if you will. Um, at the same time, the images function as memorials in that they're evocative of loss. Right, they're, points, they're memorials in that they can offer us points um, or sites of contemplation, right, for the unimaginable or the unspeakable horror of enslavement. Um, and here, I think, the work of Mariana Hirsch, a literary scholar and theorist who's worked extensively with photography and, the, and memory. Um, Mariana Hirsch writes about 
this idea of horror and the unimaginable in the context of photography and suggests that the real horror lies in the act of the viewer looking at the image and having to fill in the story, right? That all of the unknown parts that we have to imagine and glean from historical sources, that that's really the horror, this sort of continued reinterpretation and act of memory and memorializing. Um, so those are some of the uh, key points for us in thinking about these images. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about and to start our presentation with was really thinking about how to teach with these images, which we understand is really one of the central um, interests of most of you who are here. Um, as a historian, not an art historian, not a photography scholar, one, I think one of the central points for teaching with images is the importance of historical grounding, right? Of not using the images themselves as substitutes or stand-ins for a universal or overgeneralized experience, but really understanding the images themselves as reflective of particular historical moments and also constructed within those historical moments. Right, that particular circumstances and condi conditions generated these images. Um, for example, oh, I think rather than scan through, I'll point, I'll name a couple of pictures for you to keep an eye out for. For example, if we think about the contrast between the image of Dolly, which Deb will show you, which is a runaway, a pic photograph of an enslaved woman on a runaway slave advertisement, to contrast that portrait of an enslaved woman with the portrait of a newly freed woman who worked as a washerwoman for the Union Army, right? Both ostensibly port photographic portraits of African-American women, but created under very different circumstances and thus with very different meanings. So the notion of historical grounding and historical context, right, is fundamentally important for thinking about how we might use some of these images for teaching. Um, and in that sense, then, I think the full range of African-American studies scholarship whether it's literary studies, history, anthropology, or archaeology, is tremendously important. And especially when working with students, right? I found that one of the hardest things for students is to get them past sort of their feelings, right? Or their emotional response, what they think the picture looks like. Right, what they think is happening in the picture, and really sort of emphasizing to them that the picture is a historical construct that reflects a particular set of historical interests, right, a particular set of material and social and economic conditions. And obviously the images themselves, as we'll see, are meant to evoke emotional responses. Right? The first chapter in our book, Representing the Appeal, is about the emotional use of photography in the context of anti-slavery and pro-slavery ideology. So the images are meant to evoke emotional responses, and that's something that we as teachers have to be mindful of in terms of working with our students' responses to the image, right? That there's an emotional response, and that we need to think critically about what our own emotional response is and what the historically intended emotional response was. Um, Lastly, on the point of teaching, and then we'll get to look at these images, um, is thinking about the image in the classroom, thinking about the images as objects, right, as historical artifacts, and thinking about what kinds of questions that can open up for our teaching purposes about African American cultural life, African American social life, 
and especially African-American political engagement, right? Thinking about these artifacts as reflective of cultural, social, and political interests. Um, and again, here we would underscore that African-American people's knowledge, worldview, imaginations, creative and artistic visions were never marginal, right? Or even ancillary in and of themselves. Even as African-American people are defined by law and the dominant society as second-class citizens, if not property, they did not see themselves, experience themselves, or represent themselves as marginal or ancillary to their own lives or to the American experience more generally. Um, so I will stop there and let Deb talk some more about the specific pictures and then we have some points for conversation and thought that one thing we might encourage you to do is just take note of the images that you think are either the most compelling or horrific or engaging and potentially productive for your classrooms. Do you want me to stay close by? Right. Just in case. Can I take your chair? Please. Thank you. Um, we, I'm really happy to be here and, and thank the team, you know, Josh and, all, and um, Donna and Kenny, <laughs> who've been um, significant in keeping this narrative going for a number of years. Um, I think you started in a conversation with me, what, four years ago or so? And uh, way ahead of the game of, of a lot of the exhibitions that, have been, that are organizing now and touring the country. So it's really great to see that when I type in Civil War, this is the, you know, Cooney's um, is the first arm or link to the discussions in terms of teaching about these images. So it really means a lot to see that your work is significant for all of us. And I see this large crowd, which is amazing. <laughs> you know, to see such a large crowd to, to go through these images. We, uh, Barbara and I, have been friends for a number of years, and it's, it's really great uh, to share moments in terms of our disciplines and, and to try to create ideas about the things we love. People ask why we do the things we do, and, you know, it's because we love images. And we met um, talking about Dolly in terms of a, as an introduction, but we met on campus at NYU. So I'm going to go through some of the images and not talk about all of the images and we can, you know, kind of chime in, but I really would like for you all to speak at the same time if you have a question as we're going through because we have basically about an hour and 15 minutes left. But the book started with the idea of how we envision the idea of freedom and how, and just imagining the stories of the people who were photographed, as well as the photographers. And then the words of some of the letters that we've read, that we were moved by the moments. We also felt it was really important that the woman's story was always missing. And to and Molly, to me, is, is kind of my hero in, in making sense of a lot of the images that I've looked at over the past X many years of curator at the Schomburg Center and not understanding how to read some of the images, but also how to read the props in the, in the photographs. And I think that that's another way of, of looking at these photographs, looking at what the props are saying, what the clothing. And so we start off with, I saw this image, and I, I called um, Barbara right away and said, I, I found this image, and it's like really an important moment for us in terms of this has to be the cover of the book. And it's a washerwoman, um, a image of a woman who 
was um, in Petersburg, Richmond, in that yeah. area in Virginia. But she is wearing the brass pin, the U.S. brass pin that the soldiers wore, but also she is wearing and pinned the American flag. So when we think about ideas of props and patriotism, we think about the ideas of men feeling, and what we also quote in the book is the phrase by Frederick Douglass, which was so nice to walk in the door with standing next to Frederick <laughs> Douglass, um, that he said that what it meant, okay, I'm gonna put this on <laughs> so I remember. Once you let um, the black man get upon his person, the brass letter U.S., let him get an eagle on his button and a musket on his shoulder and bullets in his pocket. There's no power on earth that can deny that he's earned the right to citizenship. So to see that this brass button shared with this washerwoman who was possibly um, helped in terms of her freedom through um, some of the men that she worked for. And so the range of images that we, I'm gonna go through and then we'll both kind of talk through is that we thought it was important also to have the replica of the, of the Emancipation Proclamation as, as a beginning. Um, one of the first images that we started off with, was, I thought was a fantastic image, was a woman at the gate, um, as if she's entering this notion of envisioning emancipation. Um, when we realized that someone else had the same idea on another book, that we decided that we had to take it away. And, and, but I think that this is just such a moment. And looking at tintypes, um, this was a, in an, a photo album that was found by uh, and purchased by an art historian, Cheryl Finley. But here she's wearing the hat. We thought fashion was really an important moment. Thinking about who made the clothes, you know, that was an important moment for us to think about how do we envision emancipation. That there were no shopping malls or stores, but to think about color, putting clothes together, and then the photographer's studio, using the gate as a metaphor of entering into a new life. And that's something that we thought about as we um, worked with this book. And I'm not going to talk about a lot of these older images, but these are, we started off with um, the Zealy images, um, the Agassi images that were a collaboration of looking at uh, African-born and free-born, um, uh, American-born um, blacks on the plantation in South Carolina. And so we wanted to frame the discussion with some of these early images. But this is the image that um, was mentioned earlier, <coughs> just in terms of, do you want to talk about that connection of the two? Oh, uh, sure. So this is a picture of a woman named Dolly who ran away, um, shortly after the war began, ran away from her master in South Carolina. She, she was, he had actually taken her to Georgia, um, so she runs away from his home in Georgia. And then the image is glued onto a handwritten runaway notice, right, that he's advertising for her return during the war. And so one of the things, and so it was this picture that was one of the pictures we first started talking about years ago. Um, why did her owner have this picture taken? Was she possibly holding his baby in her lap? Um, obviously, the picture is cropped, so you can't, we don't know what's in her lap. Um, an archaeologist at the University of Texas who works on African American archaeology said, you know, it may have been his picture, 
but if she's working in his house, she's seeing the picture every day, right? So the picture has multiple meanings depending on who's seeing it, right? What does it mean to her to have to dust that frame every day? But so to compare that portrait with the portrait of the washerwoman that we have on the cover of the book, for example, right? The point being that we can't simply say, well, there are all these portraits of black women in the Civil War era, and they're one and the same, and let's just look at them all as portraits. Right, they were taken for very different reasons, um, very different use of props. Again, if she's sitting in a chair holding a baby is very different than a woman sitting with an American flag pin and the Union Army pin. So it's the, that kind of attention to detail and attention to thinking about what's the intended use and then what are all of the other relationships to this image. And Barbara, you also wrote about her encounter when she left why this image circulated still is in the family. Um, Did I? Diary. Yeah. <laughs> well, just in terms of the, the circulation of this image that it um, oh, that reappeared. He, that he sent it out and then saved it, right? He sent this notice to the police and then at some point, he being her master, Louis Manigault, right, sent this notice to the police and then at some point retrieved it, right, and saves it in this scrapbook that's like, the sort of nostalgic lament for days gone by of the slavery. Um, my other favorite part of this story that I'm writing about in something else is that in the notice he insists that she's been lured away by a white man. And in truth, right, when the overseer investigates, it seems clear they might be fabricating the story, but the testimony the overseer gets from many witnesses is that she ran off with a free black man who was actually her, the lover of her choice and that they had plotted an escape, right? But her master can't possibly admit that. Um, so he creates this narrative around her photo that is completely at odds with the narrative that she and her fellow Bonds people have told each other about their lives. And, and the other um, photograph that we found and, and just kind of mesmerized with was Henry P. Moore, this photograph of um, contrabands on the um, U.S. ship Vermont mm -hmm. in Port Royal, South Carolina. Um, it's just an amazing um, scene in terms of the photograph, the way it's framed, um, the way that they're sitting and standing and posed for the camera. So we think about the, the experience of, of men who um, ran away and looked for places to live in terms of survival on some of the Civil War camps. But as fugitives, where did they go? Um, who took care of them in terms of dress? And, and that kind of story, as we look at these images closely, kind of can reconsider their lives through this um, vessel that they're placed on. And so the range of images, so this is kind of our intro to the book is, is to show the range. We um, also felt it was important to include a slave master with um, his own family and the nurse, the woman who was part of, the black woman who was part of his family um, during the entire period. Uh, images that we, we all know of, um, that was important just to have images such as um, Harriet Tubman's image. I'm hesitating because I am jet lagged and I got in Sunday and so if you bear with me, um, it's there. <laughs> it's just connecting those links. 
But Harriet Tubman, I think, is really an important um, person to have in this discussion because we hear of her as nurse and spy, but also a leader in terms of leading um, um, into freedom. But we, the way that she's posed and dressed, her bodice, her hat on the chair, um, her whole aspect of being feminine at the same time. We, we, read, we read her in a different light um, within this framework. And then also, um, this image is a group of uh, families, um, children and women um, on possibly a plantation um, in South Carolina, or no, is it in mm. Arkansas? This is South Carolina. South Carolina. And so we see that the, one of the aspects that I think is really important is to, as we change our minds about how people dressed and lived, um, how they circulated in public spaces. And so these, this is some of the important moments. These are small um, um, carte de visites, and they're really small, and so you, you're looking at them in this kind of exaggerated size. But then um, Barbara really, in terms of the story of how do we represent the appeal, the appeal for freedom. And you know, we start off with this image here that is you know, like one of the most striking images that there are a number of images of Frederick Douglass, but um, this one to me felt um, just really significant because of not looking into the camera, but looking forward. Um, do you want to talk about the time period or do you want to? Well, so the time period for the chapter, mm -hmm. um, we started roughly, I think, 1848, 40, right. 1840s, um, thinking again about the contrast, and for me as a historian, it was especially important to sort of get this out there in the book, that photography is so important to pro-slavery ideologues as well as to abolitionists and anti-slavery activists. And you know, on the art history and photography side, I mean, it seems like sort of almost commonplace knowledge that African Americans are engaged in photography, both working as photographers and as subjects. But in the discipline of history, you know, every time I mention this project to somebody, people would just kind of look at me like, oh, really? They were black photographer? Oh, really? Black people had their picture made? What? That's so interesting. You know, like, it was just this completely new concept. So we wanted to start with a chapter that really sort of laid that foundation and that also showed that well over a decade before the Civil War, African Americans were using photography to represent or to imagine and think about what freedom would look like, where freedom would exist, where it could be found, and what it would look like, both visually what it would look like and experientially what freedom might be. Um, so obviously Douglas is sort of an obvious point here, but then right, we have images from Liberia mm -hmm. um, and other portraits of African Americans in the States. But really then to make this argument that photography is so central to African-American culture and political culture at this time. And important for us was the collections that we found, we traveled, you know, internet as well as through um, planes across the country um, looking at collections. One, this is in the Nelson Atkins Museum, which was originally in the Hallmark collection. So we see how, um, collectors and, and institutions are, are preserving these images. But just in terms of the look of, of Frederick Douglass, we also wanted to use you know, pop culture, 
which is a jigsaw puzzle, which was entitled America. And it was um, developed by abolitionists um, who wanted to show uh, freedom and, and have this kind of game of playing and placing these um, images and little objects put together of, of emancipation and freedom. And this is at, the, uh, at Cornell. And the range of image, we see the, the crown halo, we see the shackles, we see the broken shackles, we see vignettes of families and the slaveholders. So it has the whole story um, as the abolitionists um, shared this. And I just recently found on, um, I think it was Sotheby's, that it was sold for $20,000. So it's, um, I think there are three in the, in this country and one in, in London. But just in terms of the responsibility uh, for salvation was found in this image here and as they try to piece together this, this moment. So we can imagine families spending time talking about slavery. We can also see the aspect of politics in terms of the aspect of, of people together talking about how do we piece together this story. This other image here is just another amazing image. And I, I find this one, um, and, and I know Barbara will talk about this, um, but to me, this is like the beginning of like that 35 millimeter moment, you know, where we rarely see daguerreotypes photographed on the outside, and in, in terms of an outside space and public space, because you, know, you have to stand still for a long time. Um, but these people stood for this image. And, and so it has this kind of foreground, middle ground, background, rare that you see this in a, in a daguerreotype um, from this period. Um, but we also see the figures in here. And there's Frederick Douglass yeah. and Jarrett Smith. And yeah. then, um, should we turn off the lights? Yeah. Would it be easier for people to see if we turn yeah, off the lights? it's harder to see. Yeah, yeah can we do that? Um, <laughs> So Deb mentioned earlier passion, and this is one of those images that sort of sends me over the edge a little bit. So does anybody know what this is a picture of? Oh, hooray. Okay, so this is a picture of a convention. It was called a Fugitive Slave Law Convention that was held in August of 1850, like almost minutes after Congress enacts the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. Right, and so it's upstate New York near Jarrett Smith's home. Jarrett Smith is here in the center. There's Douglas, obviously. Um, and then there are two black women on, uh, flanking Jarrett Smith. So one of the things that I love about this picture, and here's where historical research is so important, because there's actually a tremendous amount of information about the people and about this event available out there, right? But as of yet, until our book comes out. <laughs> no one has really pulled it together. So these, the two women who are flanking Jarrett Smith, um, oh, now I'm gonna forget the names, are Jane and Mary Edmondson. And they were two enslaved women from Washington, D.C., who had tried to free themselves by running away and were captured. Their story became sort of a national story. There was a group of about 60, 60 to 70 enslaved people who tried to flee um, one evening when all of D.C. was involved in this celebration for the end of war in France. And so, right, most slaveholders were out in the street listening to speeches and celebrating with fireworks. And so enslaved people plotted this mass, thank you, this mass escape um, 
The Edmondson sisters were part of that with some of their siblings. They were captured. Their father, who was free, was able to gain the attention and assistance of Henry Ward Beecher, who conducted a fundraiser and helped intervene to purchase the Edmondson sisters because the trader who purchased them in Washington when they were captured made clear that he was going to sell them in the New Orleans fancy market. Right, that they were young and attractive, and he was going. The intention was to sell the Edmondson sisters as concubines, right? And so their parents are overwrought, and um, the Edmondson sisters are eventually liberated. So what is so striking to us about this image is that here are the Edmondson, Edmondson sisters, photographed in the fashion of the day, looking quite refined, right? So not looking like helpless enslaved women who need that am I not a woman and a sister, right, insane supplicant who needs assistance and intervention, right? They are standing front and center, beautifully attired, beautifully composed. The newspaper accounts of this convention talk about how beautifully they sang for the audience and how eloquently they spoke on the subject, not just of slavery and their experience, but how eloquently they spoke about the central political issues of the day, namely the fugitive slave law, right? And so combining the image with the historical research, right, we get a very different view of women in slavery and women freeing themselves from bondage. Um, so that's just some of the detail. We write much more about um, the detail, but, but that's- Can you imagine this story? I mean, just kind of a new story. In that. How many, have you heard about any of this moment? One, two, okay, so that moment, to see this visualized was just so important for us. But also to see, you know, Frederick Douglass sitting on the front row and, and looking, this is two years after the photograph, the other daguerreotype was made, and so we see, you know, his activity um, in, this, in this moment. Um, important for us was also to include Sojourner Truth, Images such as a, as a woman um, with nursing a, a white child. We felt it was also important to include um, architecture with um, slave auctions. Um, this is in Atlanta. And then um, images that are um, seen and used by the abolitionists, such as this daguerreotype pen. Um, it's a, you see a black hand on a white hand. Um, over a Bible, as if they're in oath um, in terms of support of their own dream. But the fact that the image here, you can see the pen, it's often worn on the lapel of, of a male or on a hat. Um, so that part of that story for us was really important to share. And then also images by a black photographer, Augustus Washington, um, photographing John Brown, who is, uh, you know, in terms of his pose, as if he's swearing um, an oath to a commitment and possibly to the experience of Indian slavery. And um, to, for a black photographer who was living in, in the North and who was also an abolitionist, who eventually moved to Liberia as a part of another story, this kind of internationalism and connection with this. And then also, it's, unfortunately, it's not in the book, but um, danger, good, uh, Dangerfield Newbie. Um, this photograph here that um, found online, and I haven't been able to get permission to use it, so we're unable to use it in the book, 
But the story is that um, he was one of the first killed with um, John Brown at, at Harper's Ferry. Um, but what I found just really an important moment was that his, the love letters between um, Dangerfield and his wife were found in his pocket. And I was curious about why would that, why, you know, why, would, why did the government um, preserve the letters? And then I, I spoke to another historian and he said that that was evidence. They were used as evidence in the court case um, because the experience of John Brown, um, it was evidence that he was fighting for his wife's freedom. He had paid up to $200 and he needed another $200 for her freedom, but the letters, um, her master would not let her go. But here's a photograph of a man who, is, who was freed, um, went back to try to fight for his wife's freedom. Um, Urias McGill, his name was Urias Africanus McGill, 1854, photographed by Augustus Washington in Liberia, and the McGill family had a um, extended family. Um, they were traders um, in, in, in Liberia on the west coast of Africa. They also, um, um, they traded um, not only meat, um, dried meat, but fish and, and fabric. And photograph of, and for a long time, this photograph was unidentified, um, and it just said, um, with, of the McGill family, and just recently, Winston James published a, a, just a wonderful book about John Rushworm, and this is possibly his wife, and I'm, I'm almost certain. Because I'm, I'm thinking about the way that this photograph, I've always felt that she had a longing look in, in the way that she's posed. So this is, um, he died a few, I think a year or two before this photograph was taken, but we can see that she looks as if she's in mourning and she's holding a daguerreotype case in her lap. And so her story is now kind of uncovering in this, in this moment. But we are also talking about before the war where people are moving for their own sense of freedom. Family portraits that we found at Library of Congress, and then this well-known photograph of Gordon who, was, um, who also freed himself in terms of running away um, and then his image, known, um, was used by, was photo, he was most first photographed by surgeons in, in Louisiana, and then the images were shared um, through the abolitionist movement to show the cruelty of, of slavery, but then also that someone else has, has another theory that the images in the hands of, of the Confederates also shows that this is what happens when you do something illegal in terms of running away and you're um, beaten and um, in that way. We also, a number of images of emancipated slaves that, um, um, that are part of this story um, and, and I'm sure you've read the articles that we shared, we can talk about some of them. But <clears throat> just thinking about Isaac and Rosa and looking at Rebecca and seeing the style of dress, looking at the, the flag and the placement and the way this, this kind of idealized portraits. The images of, of learning as wealth and that discussion about Wilson and, and the book and how, who's placing the book in this, this shared moment. And this as we found them as they are now, um, in terms of the ragged clothes and then with abolitionists 
arriving and taking them away um, in this, in terms of, as they're dressed and the sense of hope. But in terms of the look in their faces, the moments of, of Wilson Chin with the branded um, slave, but also that the photographer enhanced the brand on the forehead through the negative. So to enhance that story. This is the washerwoman story. And then this photograph here of Charlotte Fortin that um, was really an important moment for us. Another one that kind of dragged along for a long time because we couldn't find the actual owner of the image um, for permission and we recycled it and it was at Howard University all the time. Um, and, but here she's holding a book and she's the first black teacher who uh, visited South Carolina to teach and, and to teach some of the children there. And she had a school and there's a collection, if you get a chance, anyone from Atlanta, at Emory, there's a fantastic collection. It was just acquired by, um, by the library there. There's a photograph of Charlotte Fortin with her, all of the children in the class and, mm -hmm. and the building and the structure at the classroom. But she also wrote about looking at the daguerreotypes of soldiers and, and, and some of the experiences she felt about Emancipation Day and celebration in her diary. So her story is important, but also looking, reading diaries of, of, of women and men from that period. So these are just some of the portraits, and then um, we can stop and can go through some of the questions. But here um, is a photograph of Nick Biddle, who was, um, quote, the first man wounded in the Great Rebellion, and he his pose, but also that his photograph was used, he lived off his photograph again, just as um, Sojourner Truth, that after the war, he, everyone in the town of Pottsville, Pennsylvania, owned his photograph because he sold the photograph and told his story. Important images of families, of a black soldier with his family. And, and reading the letters um, that were wives wrote to President Lincoln to say that our, our, my husband needs to be paid full because the, the sold, black soldiers were paid less. And it was a reminder of that these, were, these, these people are human and, and, and that experience. But the photographs also, as, as Barbara mentioned earlier, they were evidence in terms of that story. So we see a man with his family, well-dressed, um, their matching hats, the, the little girls, and the moments of these images become important. Can you go back to that for mm -hmm. one second? Mm -hmm. So this image, again, in terms of thinking about classroom use, is, could also be a great starting point, and one of the things that we write about, right, is thinking about the Civil War and the freedom fight, not just as the enterprise of male soldiers. Right, but it's something that necessarily involved women and children and families, but in terms of people liberating themselves, in terms of people thinking about what freedom would mean, whether it was family reunification, autonomous labor, um, and also what freedom meant in terms of who people were fighting for. And so one of the things that we really liked about this portrait is that it's not just a portrait of a soldier, right? It's not just about bravery defined through military service, but sort of allows for opening up a conversation of what does freedom mean and what does freedom look like in the context of thinking about women freeing themselves and freeing their children, right? Or men fight like newbie, right? Fighting to free spouses and loved ones. Um, so again, in some ways, right, these pictures can open up 
conversations about the historical moment, if not about the actual image itself. And, and extending that idea of family in this image here, um, Fanny Sturgis, um, former slaves from Maryland, and we see uh, a soldier in his uniform with his, um, with his wife and he's wearing a Union a military uniform. And so we see the importance of these images and, and also the call that Frederick Douglass had for um, black soldiers to join and fight. Um, and many who joined the 54th, we see his son Charles and his son Louis and, and as they pose um, for the camera. Also, these are just the types of uh, photographs we see, double portraits of sergeants with weapons, standing in the studio, and understanding the importance of, of that studio moment. This photograph here of Christian Fleetwood, as he stands in his uniform, but he also writes, um, he has a diary that is um, just significant in, in the daily life of one day he says that he's in Petersburg and President Lincoln um, is passing through. Um, he also describes who died the day before and who's sick and what they ate. But the day-to-day -day moment of, of the diary of how do we relive this experience. Um, this is uh, William Scott who also wrote about his experience. Yes? Mm -hmm. This one, the one before, and just these studio portraits. You had used the phrase, the importance that studio moment. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could elaborate. Okay. The, the fact that many of the um, photographers were itinerants and they actually traveled to the, to the battlegrounds to document and photograph. But then some of them had studios in the cities, like in Richmond or Petersburg, um, Washington, D.C., and that the, that the subjects walked into the studios to know that their photographs are going to be sent back to families um, and that moment is where they recreate, recreate themselves, where they reimagine themselves as free men, as, as whole men, and fighting um, for, for their freedom. So that studio moment creates that sense of the imaginary. Um, it creates this sense of creating a new kind of autobiographical moment for, for them in terms of that portrait. And that's where we see that sense of theater in the um, studio. Um, the backdrops, uh, some, of her, some of them work with it, with the drape, where the table is on the side here, and the cap is, is placed there as a, as a signifier. Um, in terms of this manly pose of, you know, arms crossed, um, that's, that's another aspect of how do we read the posing in the studios. He's seated here, but Look at the signifiers here. There's a sword um, looking away from the camera. Um, those moments, that's what I'm seeing. The, this stanchion here, this pillar um, used in the framing, but then also the, the floral arrangement of creating this space of outside, indoor, um, inside space where um, he stands out, um, Fleetwood stands out in the portrait. And, and this photograph here, um, William Scott, he um, wrote an article, Soldier, Slave, and Citizen. And so he lived a, a long life, 
but the fact that he preserved this experience and wrote about it, um, he didn't know that he was enslaved. He didn't understand that experience. And then when he realized at the age of eight, he decided to uh, fight for his um, freedom and run away um, with, uh, when the Union soldiers arrived in his town. And workers, um, children, um, portraits of children in the studio who worked with some of the, the uh, white soldiers. And here we see Pose with, uh, sitting on a suitcase, um, <clears throat> just kind of leaning. This is called Henry, uh, Henry Wright, private servant. Um, this is the first um, African-American sailor that we found in terms of a uniform um, studio. But there's a sense of pride. And then uh, this image here is, was really, um, we were like shocked by it and curious by it. Um, and then taking time to, you know, why is this gun posed at her head? Um, but it's, and then looking closely, it's, it's the distance. There is a dimension in here where they're proudly holding the gun across their breast, you know, where they're saying that they're here to protect her. I mean, it's a really fascinating way. She was um, running away. She posed as a boy. Um, she arrived in, um, in Wisconsin. Um, she was 25 years old. She arrived in, in Wisconsin. And, and she was moving through with some abolitionists. And they asked uh, Jesse Birch and Frank Rockwell, to, they were postmaster, to protect her. And so this photograph, as she's dressed in, in, as a woman, is, 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 is this kind of evidence that she made it thus far. And so, but reading and knowing about this image, and J.P. Ball was the photographer who was a black photographer and an abolitionist in Cincinnati. And so this photograph was taken um, in his studio in Cincinnati. Um, we also felt it was important to show um, the back of the, the carte de where you can see the 24th um, U.S. Colored Troops. Some of the artists that created this kind of dream-like effect is that they're reaching um, to the heavens. Unidentified soldiers, um, we see the American flag and, and this whole experience of where the gun is placed. Um, Martin Delaney was a, a significant person for us to make sure that he was a part of this as an abolitionist and a journalist, that he was like known um, in terms of the story. One of the other moments that we were excited about is finding this photograph of a, a free military school for colored troops. And this is in Philadelphia. And to see this street scene, I don't know if anyone's from Philadelphia in here or knows Philadelphia, but to see this moment, this is Chestnut Street, um, but we see young men standing outside. And to me, that was just, um, as a Philadelphian, <laughs> you know, it was like really kind of a, a good moment for me. Um, the, the call for the regiments, and then the wagons, um, Cooley, the photographer, with um, the black figure um, as the driver. For the um, for the wagons for the for the photographers, so the portraits range from as again unidentified men, but the fact that these are hand colored it meant something to someone in terms of their collections, to brothers in arms you know these two you know brothers um, touching, and then 
this wonderful portrait here. Some of them are in, in poor condition and ranges from group scenes to other musicians and then these type of photographs. Some of them we did not include because poor reproductions. But I thought it was important to share this moment with you as uh, because these photographs are on the Library of Congress website. You can have access to them. But the fact is that hand coloring also meant uh, another dimension in terms of sentiment, sentimentality and memorializing these images. And um, one of the strangest <laughs> story that we found was this um, and Chandler um, family, Andrew and Silas, that you've read that, that piece. And then we'll end with just kind of the, the notion of the theater of the war from um, Private Johnson, um, who was many um, stories that kind of range and experience what happened to his life, that he was, um, he was um, said something improper to a, a white woman, um, that he was, a, he was um, a deserter, but here is um, a photograph of him actually being lynched um, and executed. Um, Timothy O'Sullivan is one of the noted photographers who photographed um, the West in terms of the westward expansion, made this photograph and it's just titled Contrabands. Um, we see this in um, working, can't read this one, I won't read that one. <laughs> but here, um, images with uh, Matthew Brady, um, who was a photographer with uh, soldiers, white soldiers on the porch and black um, workers um, holding and posing with the, with the horse. President Lincoln's horse, um, Old Robin, to how so black soldiers are part of the frame. They're inside and outside the frame from, from the porch, but also within the flag of this freedmen's quarters. Black soldiers worked as cooks and as teamsters in terms of moving um, horses and, and food along the way. And we found a, lo a lot of photographs that, that had some image that had either quote, contrabands or uh, men working as, um, as servants. And there were letters that we also found where men wrote about that experience. Are we not soldiers? Um, are we servants? And we want to fight. We want to fight for our own freedom. And so the letters were, were significant. And if you have a chance to read Pamela Newkirk's book on, um, on the letters of, of, of black Americans, it's, it's significant because she has a range. And so these are some of the images that we felt were important to include that also had, you know, the drapes of the American flag. And one of the things, can I interrupt you? One of the things in a lot of these um, portraits of officers and soldiers and servants that we write about at length in the book is about thinking about these images. These are all composed images, right? These are images made largely by northern photographers, itinerant photographers, some very prominent like O'Sullivan or Brady or Sam Cooley. But right, so these are images that are being created to sort of send visual narratives about the war back home, right, to northern cities, northern rural communities. Um, and so again, thinking about using these images in the classroom then isn't so much about here's documentation of the war, right, but here's representation of the war, right? And so one of them, the questions that we ask 
in the book is sort of what do these images tell us about how, say, northern white photographers and their audiences might be envisioning what freedom means, right? And we might look at that then as freedom in these pictures, right, as a fight enacted by white soldiers on behalf of enslaved people who remain in the background, right? And so that's part of what we mean about the multiple readings. Of the, on the one hand, we have documentation of enslaved children working as servants, right? Gaining their freedom through their labor for the army. So we have these artifacts of their lives and their service, but then we also have this artifact of this other narrative that is keeping former slaves in a very confined visual space and a very confined imaginative space of what freedom will look like for American society. And, and then also this aspect of how the photographs were used in this social appeal for the white soldiers when, they, when the photographs were sent back um, to their families to um, a photograph here of, of the um, a soldier guarding the equipment and just other kind of relaxed images that are part of this Petersburg um, playing cards to, we, we don't have as many, but just in terms of the image that there is a black face in, in all of these photographs. And, 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 and as, if they're, as if the black subject is, is ensuring that he is part of the narrative of this history. And it's, even if it's a background, but there's a place that he has um, defined. Um, we also wanted to include the, the, the aspect of the fight, the slave pen. Um, this is also in, in Alexandria, Virginia. This is an interior. And this is another curious image where there's a woman outside of a slave pen with basket as if there is some kind of dialogue going on with who, uh, whoever was in there um, within that experience. To um, this soldier here, um, he's actually wearing a uniform and don't have as many in terms of wearing a uniform. And then important to include um, Susie King who nursed the wounded soldiers who also wrote a, a diary about the experience, and she says for four years and three months, and she'd never received money for her work. But she taught them how to read, how to write letters, and so her, her narrative is, is a part of that experience. And then with the um, image of, of death, of the battleground, of the loss, and then the collecting of, of the bones, and here we see this kind of constructed image of, of the skulls and why that is important in terms of as we begin to count the numbers of people who, who died and how long they preserved their bodies on, on the battleground. And so we could end here with these images of, of the soldiers and then kind of open up to sure. discussion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I